and welcome back to How to Ask a Question, another full episode of the Gallery 44 podcast. Today, this episode is guest hosted by me, Wei Chang, Gallery 44's 2023-24 writer-in-residence. Today, I'm speaking with artist Colin Miner. The fugitive and cyclical are ongoing departure points for Colin, whose practice takes form through arrangements of objects and images. Notable exhibitions include the Contemporary Art Gallery, Vancouver, the Second Camille's Triennial, the Philippines, and the Beijing Center of Art, China. Responsive projects have developed from research into non-human subjectivity at the Banff Center for the Arts, Treaty 7 Territory, Tambopata National Reserve, Peru, Sloth Island, Guyana, and La Dacha, Berlin. Colin co-edits Moray.ca and facilitates the experimental project space Moray's Catwalk. Studies on the ontological anxiety of photography led to a PhD from Western University, London. Colin's exhibition, The Clearest Image, was on display at Gallery 44 from April 11th to May 27th, 2023, presented in partnership with the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival. The exhibition pursues the question, what is photography? and the ontological anxiety that shadows it through a research and creative practice working to make discourses of displacement visible. The installation draws on research of disturbance regimes, feral bore, and photographic systems, while holding on to the certainty of moving, to the practice of poking, prying, roaming, and rooting, as an adaptable way of being that offers scattered remnants of presence and positions. Welcome, Colin. Um, your show just came down last week, and I wanted to ask, how do you feel about it, and how was the reception to it? Yeah, hi, Wei. Yeah, really nice to have this chance to have a conversation with you today. Uh, yeah, the, the reception seemed really, really great. It was uh, a fantastic opportunity to work with a bunch of amazing people and really push my practice in a way I haven't done uh, before and explore, I think, some of the themes and uh, ideas and directions of a practice that we'll be talking about today, uh, an expanded photographic practice. Perfect. Yeah, well, I'm just going to dive right into it. Um, So when we met to plan this podcast episode, you had mentioned that your approach to photography has evolved over time, uh, moving specifically from a more formal studio-based practice to a looser assemblage approach to photography and image making. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on this trajectory and how the work of some of your contemporaries and predecessors like Ken Lum and the Vancouver School of Photoconceptualism, how those have influenced your work. Super, thank you. Um, yeah, I guess uh, when we were talking, uh, I was kind of thinking through this trajectory of working within a medium of photography and slowly exploring the boundaries of a photographic practice. Um, this really, uh, I guess it started in my MFA when, as you mentioned, I was working with Ken Lum. Uh, I've, I've really had a lot of uh, support throughout my uh, education and career uh, that I'm immensely grateful for. Uh, Ken was one of them who was very encouraging. It's always rare in her life to find people who are encouraging for the different things we do and uh, the ambitions we might have. Um, and yeah, we're working in Vancouver, I guess that was like the late 90s, early 2000s. And for me, it was this this kind of struggle, I guess, in studios, uh, thinking about, as I'm sure everybody you know struggles in studios, uh, what to make work about, how to make work. 
um, and I think there there was started to become some limits for me in terms of a traditional photographic practice. Uh, part of the areas that I would get stuck in or see people getting stuck in with conceptualism is this idea that a work needed to be fully thought out, planned before production was even engaged. Um, not to say that's always how it goes, but this is kind of what I was interpreting and, and working through. And um, yeah, that, that changed when I got had more time uh, during a, a four-year doctoral degree at Western University to start exploring uh, more in depth the history of photography, uh, photographic practice, and a studio uh, or visual art studio practice. Uh, residencies started uh, to become more common for me as ways to explore and expand research. Uh, and I found that was really engaging and necessary to do outside of a studio context in terms of uh, working site responsively, uh, working with different archives and images. Um, and yeah, so I think that also led to this question of how to build a practice if not on a medium specificity. Uh, so often, you know, there's a history, lineages, questions that can kind of be engaged. We can carry on in this kind of linear path. Um, and my research was taking me a bit out of that, thinking of cyclical time and exploring photography itself as I think optimally suited to this expansion. Uh, part of the theme of the exhibition The Clearest Image that I did at Gallery 44 was thinking through uh, concepts of migration um, and for me bringing that in relation to photography, how photography has continually migrated throughout its, you know, the last 200 years and even beyond then, um, not just as a technical photographic medium but also how it might exist in the world, it might exist more philosophically um, in relation to light and dark um, and these kinds of considerations. Um, and I should also note, yeah, there, there's been uh, lot, lots of people who have supported me uh, in my move to Toronto and working here. Um, there's an artist group called the Fastworms that were immensely uh, encouraging and helpful and kind of expanding my idea of an art practice and also thinking beyond art as singular works and moving into spaces such as installation or uh, even thinking of systems more broadly speaking. A recurring theme in our conversation is this notion of compromise um, and it also was the part of the title of your exhibition back in uh, Berlin at La Dacha. This, where you had evoked this notion of um, shameful compromise as, it, as Deleuze and Guattari wrote about it. So I'm wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about compromise and how compromise uh, influences the way you, you create your work, but also the way you exhibit your work and, and just how, and how, um, and how compromise functions yeah. for you. Um, I think generally, I guess it's trying to be aware of the different relations I'm engaged with or that present themselves and thinking about sensitivity as a way of acknowledging the different power I might have to make a decision and or not make a decision and then how that might affect um, the things that I am engaging with. Um, 
maybe a clearer way of thinking about this. Recently, I've started thinking about appropriation as being potentially problematic in the sense that often I don't find there's a clear, a clarity in terms of who has the a power to appropriate. Um, like, I think that's a very privileged position to be in, to, to be in a position to be able to appropriate. Um, carries a lot of power, and I think with that carries a lot of responsibility. Um, so for me, I guess I'm, when working with animals, when working with uh, historical images or images in other contexts used for other means, or even while working architecturally with a space as I did at Gallery 44, um, doing sanding, some investigations, burrows, but then thinking about how if certain act actions are carried forward, um, how they then exist, what pressures they then put on a system that I'm engaged with or other people uh, or myself um, and trying to be more considerate and aware of that and honest about that. And I think having some clarity of communication. Um, yeah, and I think ultimately, you know, not, not like something is valuable to me. I think when there are forms of compromise, just like in that term arrangement I'm using, where there's an agreed upon kind of meeting point. Um, and then that also offers, I think, really intriguing ways that I might not have thought of beforehand being responsive. Uh, so this, this term site responsive is something I like um, rather than site specific um, because it's very much being open to how things are responding and how I'm responding um, in generative, positive, and supportive ways. Um, and if they are disturbing or if they do create antagonism, trying to have some space uh, to work through that and to also think about why that, that might be, uh, hopefully to better understand maybe some of the underlying power dynamics or, or relational dynamics uh, that I might not have known or, or been aware of. Mm -hmm. An important pre precursor to this project was um, a residency and an exhibition in Berlin where you first encountered the Eurasian feral boar um, and exhibited your project that you mentioned earlier, um, Shameful Compromises at Ladacha. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about your participation in that residency, um, your engagement with the feral boar while you were there, and how that project developed. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was, um, yeah, so Berlin, I think I first went in 2018. Uh, it was uh, for a residency uh, called Ladacha, which was run by a colleague named Jessica Groom and her partner at the time, Michael Kroos. Um, and it was set uh, in these allotment gardens in the northwest, I guess, of Berlin, in the, generally the, the vetting area. Um, and... It was, um, yeah, these um, little f plots of land where there's little cabins for people to stay. My understanding is that they were uh, really developed uh, post-World War II um, in, in response to Allied sanctions. 
to kind of alleviate some food shortages, uh, resource shortages and whatnot, that people could do some farming to supplement uh, food and uh, diets and that sort of thing. Um, and when I went there, um, I had, yeah, I think it was about, you know, two, three weeks or so. Um, and I, I kind of went with an open mind in terms of not exactly knowing what I was going to do. Um, I have some familial history coming out of Germany. It was my first um, time traveling to uh, Europe. Um, I traveled extensively in uh, Asia, uh, living in China for five or six years in Beijing. Um, so I was also very interested to kind of try to be open about what, what, what I might encounter or experience there. Um, and early on, I, we, there was a, a park nearby, uh, Volks Park, uh, that had its own history that I found about later, uh, kind of being a zoo and then a rallying point for the National Socialist uh, Party uh, pre-World War II. Um, and like many parks in Berlin, it's kind of like a semi-feral space where it's not fully developed. Um, that really changed when I visited again uh, post-COVID. Uh, but I'll, yeah, I'll try and keep... Uh, sometimes I think a bit tangentially. <laughs> uh, so I, I should uh, state that, yeah, now maybe <laughs> that uh, my mind likes to wander a bit. Uh, so that's uh, hopefully not too difficult for people when I'm uh, moving around in these kind of thoughts. Um, but yeah, early on, Jess introduced me to this area where these uh, feral boar were, um, and they exist uh, differently in different parks, and some they're just kind of uh, on their own. Uh, in this one, I think maybe because it's in closer proximity to uh, residential areas, they have some uh, fencing kind of set up. Um, at that time, it felt very much more like keeping humans out rather than keeping the pigs in, or, or the feral boar in, rather. Um, and that's a distinction I learned about, is pigs have this adaptive, uh, domestic pigs, rather, have this adaptive ability to change physiologically over a few generations. Uh, and this uh, kind of nicely coincided. We, we went, uh, Jessica took me to see some galleries, and we... Uh, came upon this Hieronymus Bosch painting that depicted these two pigs in this larger tapestry um, kind of depiction of, uh, and one was this kind of very pink, we, we think of this domestic pig, and then one was this kind of more feral boar with tusks and hair. Kind of was thinking, oh, this is this is kind of intriguing. Uh, and even the, the uh, pigs in the park, or the feral boar rather, uh, trying to find the distinction about wild boar domestic pigs. Uh, and yeah, so, so after a number of generations, they grow hair, they grow tusks, and there's this, uh, yeah, really, really incredible adaptation to environment and change. Uh, and they, they thrive in areas of conflict and turmoil, um, ecological change, uh, war, urbanization, um, yeah, uh, ecological collapse, or these sorts of things. And they are the, the most populous mammal uh, in the world uh, after humans. Um, and coinciding with this time, there was also uh, memes and, and these kind of viral tweets coming out of southern USA related to gun legislation, uh, specifically automatic weaponry, um, where people were advocating for it not being uh, kind of further restricted because of these hordes of boar that were encroaching 
uh, on farmland, and it, it became this very curious kind of uh, discussion um, where it was, yeah, very intriguing thinking about the various politics kind of wrapped up in this kind of animal, um, and then also thinking about those similar politics, if you will, thinking about the rise of the right, for instance, thinking about fascism, thinking about this kind of hundred-year-ish uh, timeline since World War II, uh, kind of starting, um, and this, this real yeah, lack of visibility about some of these kinds of conversations and topics. And the boar for me, uh, the feral boar rather, became this intriguing departure point that kind of accessed various concepts like disturbance regimes. Uh, yeah, no, relatedly, I remember during, I believe, your artist talk at Gallery 44, you had mentioned um, or said something in passing that was really interesting, but um, you were talking about how, you know, the feral boar, it's, as you mentioned, one of the most populous mammals in the world, and it's also very much, in certain areas, an invasive species, but unlike some invasive species that have, like the Asian carp, it never gets, it rarely is ever identified as, or explicitly identified as like the Eurasian boar. It's always just the wild or the feral boar and the, the place name kind of disappears when discussing it about, when discussing it. So I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate on that or how that was interesting, that was, that was interesting to you as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, um, yeah, that came about in some of the research um, when I was looking into the boar and the, the, um, in the USA, they have a federal agency that kind of tracks the movement of the boar um, and is in charge of, I think, trying to limit its spread or, or think about it in terms of its impact in various ways. Um, and recently, um, I've been noticing there's uh, somebody out in central Canada doing research on this. And um, there's, you know, some some random articles coming about in the news in southern Ontario, Quebec, uh, the prairies of kind of this encroachment. And that was something that came up, yeah, when I, when I was looking um, more specifically about where these boar come from, um, about some of their own history, but thinking a little bit, yeah, about these these histories of the boars themselves. Um, and Sven Lundquist uh, wrote this book, uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, were um, quite quite a powerful book. And uh, HBO has a series, uh, four-part, I think they're about an hour long. Um, very, very intense, a lot of dense information, but kind of tracking these connections of colonialism, white supremacy, um, all the way back to the Crusades. Um, and one small part of that that kind of attached uh, onto my thinking was how the, the pigs were used as this portable protein source. Um, and there's this one uh, like terrifying graphic where they map out all the boat routes coming uh, from Europe to Africa, uh, the slave trade going into Maritimes, Eastern Seaboard, uh, South America, Central America, whatnot. And, um, and yeah, talking a little bit about how the boar allowed for some of, uh, or for this kind of expansion, conquest, and these, this, their, their relation, uh, unwitting and, and, you know, uh, relation in this kind of expansion of power. In, in Laura Demare's essay written for the exhibition, she references the notion of photography's shadow work, 
which also arose in your previous project, The Blue Hour, at the Contemporary Art Gallery in Vancouver. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on your concept of photography shadow and what this concept does to your approach to and relationship to photography and image making. For sure. Um, yeah, maybe I'll start for me. Um, I've, yeah, through the, through my research, I started re wanting to relocate this inception of photography into um, the artist researcher Anne Atkins' practice in the early 18 or 19, 1800s, rather, 19th century. Um, and yeah, she ha was doing these cyanotypes. Um, I wrote a little bit about it, uh, this specific, specific work she made. Uh, so cyanotypes are kind of this. Um, very direct uh, photo printing method uh, of coating a paper and then um, it becomes kind of light sensitive and then you can wash it with water. So it kind of removes a lot of the, the chemical processes, I guess, with, with uh, later uh, more industrial kind of photography. Um, it has this very rich blue color, which relates to this idea of the blue hour. Um, that I was exploring in my dissertation. Uh, the blue hour kind of being this time between, uh, well, it's either at, at dusk or dawn, uh, when there's a reduced contrast um, between shadows and highlights. Um, and I would often experience this time walking uh, back and forth uh, from school and uh, from the studio. And the, it, it opened up this time where you could almost pretend or, or imagine that time wasn't going backwards or forwards. Um, and for me, that was really meaningful in relation to some of this research on anxiety that I was doing. Um, and anxiety positioned more as this feeling of, of not knowing, um, about this f future sense of questions and um, in relation to preparedness. And um, engagement and um, these sorts of things. And yeah, and, and this idea of photography and images as questions without answer. Um, for me, that, that was also formed this, this strong connection with Duchamp and the ready-made and this pressure of having to choose uh, that a lot of artistic practice and making I think is very much becoming uh, these choices and this expansion of choices uh, in our time. Um, and yeah, so, so these kinds of these, yeah, this, this space of blueness, drawing it back to Anne Atkins, uh, she was working on these, uh, also these transitory spaces of shorelines of the ocean, of the shore and the ocean. And in this case, the work I was looking at, uh, she was taking samples of seaweed. Um, and I, I love this image of the seaweed and the shadows of the seaweed underwater, um, kind of moving in this kind of liquid medium. Um, and then when the tide goes out, they're kind of flattened um, and uh, start to become dried out. Um, and so she would kind of collect these things. She would dry the seaweed. She would put them on this paper. Um, and then she would uh, expose that to light. And then she would uh, wash the, the, the paper and then 
it would show these kinds of have this these images of the seaweed in it. And I, yeah, there was something very uh, yeah meaningful about that connection. These connections of liquidity, of materiality, of light and dark, um, of concept, um, shadows, uh, and that. Uh, carried on, um, I think, more directly into this exhibition uh, with some of the work with the available light um, and this relation of images and context or text um, and um, also this neutrality of this false neutrality, I think, that photography can have as documents, uh, especially in documentary photography where there's a removal of uh, those that make the images or even the systems of publication. Uh, and maybe that's it as well, this, this shadow work of, the, of systems of, um, yeah, that the photography operates in, or as Wilhelm Flusser talks about, uh, these apparatuses of photography and all of the power dynamics of relations and the qualities of relations that affect um, power relations between constituent parts. Um, yeah, so th there were these, uh, basically, um, through, yeah, and uh, yeah, maybe this is another place to talk about this idea of the found, which I quite struggle with, and really thinking about, uh, practices that put an emphasis on research and, uh, doing and engaging, uh, which open up opportunities of engagement or response uh, at different times uh, through, through attention and sensitivity, um, rather than things that are, that are found, um, things that are engaged with intent um, that one or people might look for uh, or seek out or be receptive to, maybe, um, being, yeah, receptive to different content. Um, and so looking through books, um, yeah, kind of training quite technically when I was younger um, and not being aware, but as an adult, returning to these man photo manuals from the 80s and 90s, seeing these very bizarre and often troubling juxtapositions of very... Uh, intense or um, energized social political images. Uh, the first one, for instance, uh, was in a chapter on freelance photography titled Available Light, um, and it was an image of a KKK rally. Um, and then the caption was about exciting plays of light and dark, shadows um, and forms, and how uh, a commercial photographer needed to be attentive and adaptive to changing circumstance. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was immensely disturbing to kind of think about how an image like that could be used in that way, this kind of removal um, and this, this cleansing into uh, a mechanical kind of means, technical means. Um, and as I looked, uh, oh, consequentially, I looked to see, oh, is this a, um, a one-off thing? And uh, I mean, that one kind of was, but in this show, there, there's another Im a similar image. Um, but it, it actually was quite... Uh, quite common that these images are used um, in a very insensitive way. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so, so the work I do with that 
uh, ongoing body of work, Available Light, seeks to explore and make visible some of these problematics with these systems, the shadow work, if you will, uh, that Laura nicely kind of uh, uh, wrote in response to this uh, image. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask a bit about your relationship with writing. So during our initial conversation, you had said something in passing that I was quite taken by, um, that language can mobilize a practice and determine the decisions that you're making. Um, also throughout our initial conversation, I was struck by the way you were investigating or playing with the multiple connotations behind words like rooting or wallowing, these, these actions and behaviors that the fear of war engages in and how they have in, on the one hand, certain negative connotations, but can also uh, engender new pathways of thought. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate a bit about that statement and tell me about your relationship to, to language and writing, um, and perhaps also your own publishing venture, Moray. Uh, Moray was a project uh, that's an ongoing, uh, I guess an artist, digital artist publication project I do with artist Liza Yurek and Ella Don McGough. And that started, I think around, I'm not sure, like 2013 or thereabouts, something like this, uh, where we were, and we worked very slowly over a number of years, um, where we engage with another artist's or um, yeah, visual practitioner's practice. Um, and we develop some writing with them. We do some photographic work with them, uh, either in collaboration or thinking about their spaces of, of practice. Uh, and then an interview component. Then we have somebody uh, external to ourselves write a, a text. Uh, and all of these components are very creatively driven, meaning they kind of think through how they would respond to the person's practice that we're working with, rather than for some exterior kind of purpose. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's been really, really amazing, amazing way to work generatively with other people and develop content. Uh, and that's since expanded into a rooftop project where we've done some events and other um, exhibition-like things uh, that took a little break over COVID and we'll be starting again with artists Mary Lou Lamons and Richard Igby. Um, and that's, uh, right, so the, the publication part is called Issues. This uh, rooftop thing in our live workspace is called Catwalks. Um, and then uh, we have another component called Attachments, um, which looks to for us to kind of publish drafts or working parts of other people's writing practice. And uh, we've been trying to engage with, uh, yeah, more creative content or experimental things or people who may not uh, be writing a lot or, or have publishing opportunities, either early in their career or visual artists that want to um, do that. Um, and sometimes it has visual kind of content as well. Um, yeah, in terms of the the terms like rooting and wallowing, I think there was something in my, not I think, yeah, I guess there was something paradoxical that I quite liked about photography, about some of the terms that a system of photography operates on, um, how it's both a trace, but also we think of it as being fixed, how it can both be in the past, the present or the future, um, how it is uh, a light, but also this kind of practice of working with material, a concept material, lightness, darkness, um, 
even this uh, photography, like mapping or graphing light, um, has this kind of paradoxical paradoxical feel to it. Um, and so, yeah, for me, language and words is an extension of, I guess, th thinking through a project, thinking through, um, I think I had mentioned qualities of relation. So thinking about literally the qualities that various relations have, the different power dynamics or associations uh, that those might offer. Um, and things like rooting and wallowing. Wallowing was interesting uh, when I would talk about the feral boar and also doing kind of imagistic research on them and looking at how they often were used to depict the undesirable or the uncleanly or the uncouth or the lowly um, throughout history and, and how immensely adaptive even they were or are as this kind of symbolic uh, putting down or uh, the underclass um, and how things like wallowing in, in Western culture has this kind of negative connotation of, of you know, pity or laziness. Um, and then through some of that uh, more in-depth research on their physiology and their inability to sweat, thinking, oh, actually, this is kind of like they, they wallow in these uh, pools, and that, that's how I encountered them uh, one time. Uh, I guess, yeah, one time uh, when I was at the Berlin Park that got me really intrigued with them and going back kind of every day to spend time with them was they were, we'd, on these hot, hot days, was, it was during one of those heat, heat events um, in 2019, I think it was. Um, Berlin not, not being associated with kind of, you know, 30s, maybe even low 40s kind of temperature. Um, they, they would go into these kind of swampy algae pools and hang out there. Um, and it really resonated with me how I thought of the video film components in some of my arrangements as even exhibitions, as this space removed from the world that one might go, or I hope would go, to, to have sustained viewing opportunities. And that, that doesn't even necessitate long periods of time. It could be a short periods of sustained viewing. Uh, and then the film work, uh, as I've talked about with these available lights, there's this kind of density of references, images, context. Uh, so thinking of videos as a place of reflection that I could offer a viewer, thinking of the sitting space uh, that their bodies would inhabit or find for uh, respite or refuge. Um, and in this case, kind of this uh, doorway that was made into a platform that was kind of cool, and we had these brooms that they would be swept off every day from the dust following uh, from the ceilings due to the heritage uh, structure of the building. Um, and, yeah, so this wallowing is a, is a space of contemplation, meditation maybe even. Uh, not, not to romanticize it too much, though. I mean, I think that's also something I try to be very careful with, with some of these terms, um, and especially working with animals and uh, this not so interested in anthropomorphization or... Um, but thinking about realities that are non-human or perspectives uh, or beings that are non-human and how that might give us some perspective... Um, this, the, these books uh, that I've been also reading, 
speak very much about a needed change in how we think about aesthetics and aesthetics of change, uh, especially as the world changes around us and adapts around us. Again, these boars that are doing this. Um, and I think finally, yeah, that term rooting, uh, which I would see them do uh, the first time they were kind of gathering grass, blades of grass. And I was uh, just thought it was like a one-time thing. And, but then they would kind of keep coming back and getting this grass and making these burrows, these beds. That was quite remarkable, just thinking about uh, their excuse me, them as entities and, and making these intentful actions. Um, and then the rooting was a one, uh, and I think Laura talks also about it as a soothing thing, um, where they kind of, they have these uh, snouts that are these perfect plows, and they kind of would see them go under uh, the topsoil a little bit, which causes aeration. Uh, it disturbs, but it also creates new opportunity. Uh, and sustenance for them through grubs or roots, excuse me. Um, and uh, some of the apples and plums I would see them trying to reach uh, on these, these tr low-hanging um, boughs that, uh, yeah, they would somewhat, you know, sadly pitiful in a way of like trying to jump and seeing a pig jump is, uh, yeah, it, it was like, this effort and then uh, but not being able to reach so I'd collect some and and uh, offer them to them those would kind of go in the soil they'd plow it up um, and I think circling back to some of the kind of social political content or things and research I was doing is that this idea of of rooting has this on this one side these positive aspects but it was also immensely meaningful with the support of the gallery and doing this project is really thinking about the process of exhibition making, having time, uh, working with architecture and uh, ins the installation of components and thinking about the difficulties that can arise from rooting. Uh, you know, sometimes nice things or generative things are found and other times rooting brings up things that's uncomfortable, um, brings up things that might be antagonistic. And then thinking about um, after somebody like Chantal Mouffe's kind of concept, of antagonism being a, a fundamental part of democracy as a strategy in which difference can be explored uh, communally or uh, in which people can maintain autonomous uh, positions while also finding ways to navigate kind of that difficulty of difference, uh, of disturbance. Um, and yeah, I think acknowledging that also very much so the different levels at which disturbance can resonate uh, individually, uh, communally, systemically, um, yeah. I want, yeah, I'm thinking too, because you had mentioned and we had talked before about your interest in Chantal Mouffe and her idea of, of, of productive antagonism. Um, and yeah, I'm wondering if that's also, if that kind of triangulates with this interest in compromise and, and uh, the questions and ethical kind of, kind of questions that you're thinking of. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Chantal Mouffe. Um, yeah, for me, that was a reading or, or um, an area I started exploring very much out of relational aesthetics. Um, this kind of ties back, I guess, to some of my time uh, when I was developing as an artist, as an MFA student in Vancouver, um, 
when relational aesthetics, a lot of the discourse was kind of coming out, uh, and Clara Bishop was writing about relational antagonism and thinking through the ways that some of the value, as I understood it, some of the value of art comes about through a questioning, not just a recreating of a system that exists and a recreating of power dynamics or uh, forms or qualities of relations. Uh, so, so um, yeah, or, or if or if you are recreating them, doing them in such a way that creates some some antagonism, creates some questioning create some space where people then might understand or see those forms of relations uh, from a different perspective. Um, and that, yeah, that seems immensely meaningful, both just for my practice and I think in, in everyday life and, and for what art can do.